Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is An Eye for an Eye. Evictions and Assassinations, The Great Famine, Part 18. This podcast opens a new phase in the story of the Great Famine, one that only really began in 1847. After two years of starvation and disease, you would be forgiven for thinking Ireland could fall no further. However, having survived the hardship of famine, a new challenge lay ahead, particularly in the west of Ireland, where landlords were preparing to evict tens of thousands of families. This provoked one of the bitterest chapters in the entire history of the Great Famine. While homelessness at any time brings great risk, uncertainty and severe hardships, in the midst of the Great Famine it was a potential death sentence. Therefore, Many were desperate to avoid being cast out of their homes and we will see through the course of this show some landlords paid the ultimate price for their actions as their tenants fought desperately to avoid eviction. This podcast also tackles the thorny subject of who actually was to blame, a question with answers that are far from straightforward. In order to understand what some regard as the most notorious aspect of the entire famine period, the show opens by honing in on the disturbing but enthralling events that took place in one community that gained notoriety from evictions that took place there. That is Strokestown, County Roscommon. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge two sources I relied heavily on for this show. They are Strokestown and the Great Famine by Kieran Riley, which I used for the opening parts of the show on Strokestown, and the Great Irish Potato Famine by James Donnelly, which I relied on for the statistics relating to Kilrush in County Clare. I used dozens of other sources, both primary and secondary, for this podcast, and you can find these in the episode guide, along with links to other online resources. That's available at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. This episode and the entire Great Famine series is only possible because of the support of listeners like you who have become patrons. Throughout the series, I'm thanking all patrons and this week I want to mention Gary Bruce Lane, Rita, Martine Brennan, Andy Jemison, 
Stephen Bolan, Tom Robinson, Kirsten Lavendaly, Brendan Walsh, Brian Spence and Keith Tynan. On November the 3rd, 1847, the Dublin correspondent of the English newspaper, The Times, struck terror into aristocratic readers across Britain. As servants handed their employers crisp, freshly ironed newspapers, they were faced with the startling headline that read, Atrocious Assassination. Perhaps the most unnerving aspect of the following report was the ominous question asked by the writer, who will be next? The journalist wasn't talking about the victims of a Victorian serial killer, but instead Irish landlords who, if such reports were to be believed, were dropping like flies at the hands of disgruntled tenants who were fast turning into bloodthirsty assassins. These stories, like all exaggerated accounts, were, however, rooted in fact. By late 1847, a brutal struggle was erupting across Ireland between landlords and their starving tenants, who were, in many cases, emaciated by two years of famine. The struggle was, in all too many cases, a ruthless battle, where the losers, all too often, lost their lives. The latest assassination which had provoked such ominous headlines in the Times had taken place in a relatively obscure Irish town called Strokestown in County Roscommon. Similarly, the target of the assassination, a Major Dennis Mann, while a large landlord, was not a particularly well-known figure, or at least he wasn't, until November 1847. It's safe to say, had he not died in the dramatic circumstances, at the hand of an assassin, he would never have ventured far from the footnotes of local history books. However, while newspapers and politicians would portray his killing as mindless thuggery, with the advantage of hindsight, it is clear that it was a result of a long process that had in many ways started far back in the early 19th century, steeped in Mahan family history, but brought to a head by the ravages of famine. Aged 60 at the time of his murder, Major Dennis Mann had lived a privileged, if undistinguished, life. His army career in the Ninth Lancers back in the 1820s, which earned him the title of Major, had few prominent chapters. The fact it was overshadowed by a nine-year legal dispute over his inheritance speaks volumes. From the 1830s onwards, Mann had been embroiled in a lengthy court case with his cousin over control of tens of thousands of acres of land that comprised the Strokestown estate. The dispute was precipitated by the fact that the then current owner, Dennis Mann's uncle, Morris, had lost his mind, which triggered a legal challenge between Dennis and his cousin over the right to inherit the large estate. The affair was finally concluded in Major Dennis Mann's favour and when his insane uncle finally died in November 1845, he gained full control of the family lands. While it had taken him the best part of a decade to actually gain control of the Strokestown estate, it was an understandable endeavour given how expansive his inheritance was. The Strokestown estate encompassed somewhere in the region of 11,000 acres of land irrigated by the headwaters of the River Shannon. On initial appearance, it seemed the perfect picture 
of rural tranquillity. It was centred around the quiet village of Strokestown, home to around 1,500 people on the eve of the Great Famine. Situated in Connacht in the west of Ireland, it was too far from Dublin to attract the early tourists starting to arrive in Ireland, but County Roscommon in general did not have the allure of the remote corners of western Mayo that increasingly drew the more intrepid travellers who were willing to trek across the remote expanses of bog to write about the communities they encountered. Indeed, Strokestown, if anything, had a much more prosperous and developed feel to it than most places in Connacht before the famine. Samuel Lewis, who visited in 1837, commented, Strokestown consists of two streets intersecting each other at right angles. There are 276 houses, some of them very good buildings of stone, some covered in Welsh slate. The market is held weekly and is very numerously attended, giving a bustling appearance to this place. At the eastern end of the town lay the unassuming yet grand Gothic entrance to Strokestown House, the residence of Captain Dennis Mann and the jewel in the crown of his estate. Mann's home in Strokestown was a vast Georgian mansion which still remains the impressive building it was in the 1840s. The original house had been an elegant three-storey building but by the 1840s this was flanked by two symmetrical wings which had been added on forming a complex which enclosed a three-sided courtyard that enveloped the approaching visitor. While the house and the neighbouring yard were unquestionably picturesque This should not be confused with serenity. By the late 1840s, Strokestown's beautiful appearance of stone buildings capped with their imported Welsh slate masked terrible suffering from famine. But more importantly, in terms of this show, it also hid an increasingly bitter struggle, one that had been brewing since the earliest days of the famine and before. When his uncle, Morris Mann, finally died in November 1845, Major Dennis Mann inherited the Strokestown estate. While he had battled for almost a decade in courts to be in this precise position, it had arrived at the worst possible moment. Historians have likened inheriting the Strokestown estate in November 1845 to that of a poisoned chalice, and there certainly was major challenges ahead. Just two months earlier in September, Potato blight had first appeared on crops along the east coast of Ireland. Early hopes it could be contained to isolated pockets had proved illusory and by November between 30 and 40% of the crop had been lost leaving 3 to 4 million people facing food shortages. While this in itself would not produce the horrors of the Great Famine the loss of the entire crop in the following year of 1846 and the utterly inept response of the British government pushed the situation towards a catastrophe. However, the impact of this was not just limited to food shortages. It influenced almost every aspect of society. In each parish and townland across Ireland, the ensuing crisis developed individual characteristics which were fashioned by local dynamics. And in Strokestown, these dynamics were very acute indeed. What was common to most communities and crucial in our story was the way it impacted landlord-tenant relationships. As the poor were unable to even afford food, 
Thousands stopped paying their rents. They simply didn't have the money to do so. In Strokestown, the impact of this can only be understood by looking at the already dire financial position of the estate before the famine had begun. When Dennis Mann assumed control of Strokestown, he faced problems that were common to many Irish estates by the mid-19th century, ones caused by financial difficulties and mismanagement. Previous to inheriting the estate, it had been in the hands of two uncles, Morris, who as we've seen went insane, and previous to him, another uncle, Thomas Mann. Thomas Mann was, in a word, a disaster. By the time of his death in 1835, he had borrowed large sums he could not afford to carry out renovations. Even from beyond the grave, he added to the financial problems Major Dennis Mann faced as he left large endowments to his widow and children, which had to be paid for from the estate. This profligacy left Strokestown in debt to the tune of £30,000. After Thomas Mann's death, the estate had passed to Morris, his brother, who as we have seen was mentally ill, and for about a decade until his death in November 1845, Strokestown was essentially rudderless. After he was declared a lunatic, the lands had been managed by officials until the court case between Dennis Mann and his cousin was resolved. This dispute, however, had led to chronic mismanagement. Wards appointed by the court were incompetent and had shown no interest in Strokestown. This had allowed the problem of subdivision of land to continue unchecked. As the population of Roscommon increased at a rapid rate, it stood at over 250,000 by 1841. There was an increasing demand for land. Rather than develop the estate in a sustainable manner, Farms had been repeatedly subdivided into smaller and smaller plots of land to accommodate the rising population and this just pushed the people further into poverty. By 1846 there were nearly 12,000 people living on 11,000 acres of land with no changes in farming techniques to allow for more intensive farming. This contributed to major social tension and further financial problems as many tenants had fallen several years behind in their rent. With the onset of famine in 1845, Major Dennis Mann was owed somewhere in the region of £13,000 in unpaid rent, a phenomenal amount for the time. While few could argue that an estate like Strokestown needed to be restructured as it moved forward into the later 19th century, Major Dennis Mann was not willing to wait. Even though the famine was pushing his tenants to the brink of survival by 1846, with starvation and disease claiming thousands of lives, he nevertheless put in place major plans to restructure his estate in order to make it profitable. This restructuring began when Major Mann hired a land management company under the direction of a man called John Ross Mann, who was not related to the Major It has been speculated that this Dublin-based company were brought in to infuse a clinical, unsentimental approach free from local influences. After being contracted to manage Strokestown, John Ross Mann conducted a survey to see exactly how many people were living in Strokestown and how the financial situation could be improved. The proposals he came up with were startling and radical. In his proposal, he deemed large clearances of tenants was essential. He said that as much as two-thirds of the existing population would need to be forced off the land and evicted one way or another. 
Those remaining after these clearances would then have access to larger, more profitable farms and be in a better position to pay rents. In a deeply sectarian aspect of this plan, Mann also planned to replace his Catholic tenants with Protestants from Scotland. The new management agency felt that the Strokestown estate was in such a poor financial position that even if the land was left idle for two years after the clearances, this would be more desirable than to continue on the disastrous path it was on. This analysis was not just about rent though. By 1846 there were other significant costs being accrued which is crucial in terms of understanding famine evictions. By 1846, landlords like Dennis Mann were liable to pay something called poor rates. This was a tax which funded workhouses and was levied on all land, but landlords were responsible to pay this rate on the farms of their poor tenants. In this case, a poor tenant was defined as one living on a farm valued at less than £4. Therefore, landlords, like Major Dennis Mann, faced a hefty tax bill given there had been such extensive subdivision of farms and many of his tenants were living on tiny plots of land valued below that crucial threshold of £4. An easy way to avoid these large tax bills was to simply get rid of his poor tenants. From a purely economic perspective, these plans, if the clearances were implemented, may well have moved the Strokestown estate to a more sound financial footing. But such plans were divorced from the reality of life in Ireland in 1846. The people John Ross Mann was talking about evicting in his proposal were already starving in many cases. To make them homeless as well was near enough to a death sentence. These people would not be thrown out on the roadside easily. Many would put up a fight, as we will see next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Clearing land was naturally going to be controversial and doing it in Roscommon was not going to be easy in 1846. Irish peasants of the early 19th century are often portrayed as helpless victims in the face of starvation and eviction. But as we've seen throughout this series, time and again, they were constantly pushing back, trying to protect themselves by any means necessary. Major Dennis Mann was well aware if he tried large-scale evictions, it would cause mayhem. 
Long before any action was taken, there were already murmurings of discontent across Roscommon as the famine made many people desperate. His own cousin had detailed the situation in the county in a letter in August 1846 when he said, Matters look very threatening in Roscommon. Last week a large assemblage paraded near Castlereagh with a loaf on a pole and a placard reading, Food or Blood. If this was not enough, his own tenants at Strokestown had issued a stark warning to Dennis Mann of the consequences of not providing famine relief. The peace of the countryside will be much disturbed if relief be not more extensively afforded. We are not joining anything illegal or contrary to the laws of God or the land, unless pressed by hunger. It didn't take a genius to figure out that these people would not respond well to mass evictions and perhaps it was this that influenced Dennis Mann's decision to, initially at least, pursue a careful policy, one that was likely to cause as little direct conflict with his tenants as possible. This was something called an assisted emigration scheme. This scheme saw Mann himself personally charter several vessels to carry thousands of tenants to Canada if they were willing to voluntarily give up their farms. This was initially pretty popular among the poor of Strokestown, something that is not very surprising if you think about it. When this plan was put into action in the spring and summer of 1847, Ireland was long past the point of no return. People were desperate to escape, but all too many did not have the money, and man's emigration scheme was a way out for them. Furthermore, the terms of the scheme were very generous. Mann was not only offering to cover the costs of their passage to North America, but rent arrears that were owed were waived and the tenants were allowed to sell any stock or crops they possessed and keep the money. If you want to hear testimonies of similar emigrants from the Wandesford estate in my hometown of Castlecomer, I have recorded several of these in part 11 of this series called Voices from Black 47. Overall, in 1847, 1,490 people left Strokestown under this scheme and as they did, their houses were pulled down, eviscerating their presence from the landscape forever. This was the goal of the scheme, to clear the land and create bigger farms, not rent out the small patches of land again. While we will see that forced evictions were tragic, these early cases were voluntary and most were probably hopeful about the lives that lay ahead of them on the far side of the Atlantic Ocean. Their dreams, however, soon turned to nightmares. The tenants, after leaving Strokestown, were accompanied to the British port of Liverpool by a bailiff to ensure they boarded the ships for Canada and they would not return to Strokestown. In all, four ships had been chartered the Virginius, Aaron's Queen, the Naomi and the John Munn. The fact that the last of these, the John Munn, was in 1849 described as a proverb for everything that is discreditable and vile in regard to the conduct of emigration ships and emigration agents, spoke volumes to the conditions on board. The conditions on these ships was truly horrific. Tragically, nearly one in three passengers on board the Virginius, that's 158 out of 496 people, died of disease en route across the Atlantic. In total, of the 1,490 people who left Strokestown, over 700 died either at sea or in the quarantine station of Gros Seal after arriving in Canada. If you're a patron, you have access to an audiobook called Voices from Steerage, which I recorded last year. 
This gives you a great sense of what journeys on these boats was like. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. While disease was a major killer on these ships, Dennis Mann was not guiltless. He, like other landlords, chose to send his tenants to Canada above other destinations for one reason. Passage to Canada was the cheapest and as the historian Mary Daly has pointed out, this was because the ships were old and the route was in general poorly regulated. Mann was certainly guilty of negligence at the least. By his own later admission, those who had been removed from Strokestown were, and I quote, of the worst description. This means, essentially, poor people who were naturally the most vulnerable to the dire conditions on board given they were already starving. However, while the emigrants were dying in large numbers on board the ships, this did not have any impact back in Strokestown, immediately at least. It would take several weeks for such news to reach Ireland. Indeed, the situation back on the Mann estate in Strokestown was strangely peaceful. The early summer of 1847 was when the British government soup kitchens were running full tilt and alleviating famine effectively. However, the late summer of 1847 saw tensions build in Strokestown, some rooted locally in the actions of Major Dennis Mann, but they were also infused by pressure coming in from outside events taking place far from Roscommon. The most important of these was the shift in British government policy which created mayhem on the ground in late 1847. As has been covered in several episodes so far in this series, the British government dramatically changed their policy twice in 1847. First, early in the year and then again in the late summer. The first change had seen soup kitchens opened in the spring of the year, a move that was unquestionably the most effective relief measure. However, these were wound up in the late summer of 1847 as the British government increasingly sought to wash their hands of the crisis. From September onwards, they decided that the poor law system, funded by local taxes known as the poor rate, would now be responsible for alleviating the famine. Naturally, once the poor law unions were lumbered with the enormous strain of feeding hundreds of thousands of starving people, their costs increased dramatically, so they increased the poor rate taxes they collected. This saw the bills men like Dennis Mann face increase dramatically, as he had to pay the increased rate for each holding valued at less than £4 as well. Mann and many like him immediately took measures to reduce this bill. Initially, in Strokestown, he began to remove some of his tenants from poor relief lists, meaning he was cutting them off from famine relief. However, there were far more drastic changes on the way. Dennis Mann also embarked on a massive eviction plan. The idea here was to get rid of these small tenants for whom he had to pay rates. This was a brutal solution to the financial problems he faced. However, in the autumn of 1847, he pushed ahead with huge numbers of evictions. In total, perhaps as many as 1,000 people were pushed off his lands. With no boat to North America this time, the poor were simply evicted from their houses, the buildings torn down, and the already starving people were cast out on the roadside with nowhere left to turn but the workhouse. While man thought he was preparing the way to a profitable estate, he was merely creating tensions the perfect storm that would lead to his own death. It's easy to see why. 
While evictions took place in huge numbers across the west of Ireland in the later years of the Great Famine, the traumatic nature of these events is often lost in the huge statistics. So now I want to take a few minutes and look at what these evictions were actually like. Around this time, that's late 1847, an English Quaker, James Hacktuke, was travelling through the west of Ireland and witnessed an eviction first-hand in a now-famous passage which captures the destruction. He recalled, The policemen are commanded to do their duty. Reluctantly, they proceed, armed with bayonets and muskets, to throw out the miserable furniture. But the tenants make some show of resistance, for these hovels have been built by themselves or their forefathers, who have resided in them for generations past, seem inclined to dispute with the bayonets of the police, for they know truly that... When their hovels are demolished, the nearest ditch must be their dwelling, and that thus exposed, death could not fail to be the lot of their wives and little ones. Perhaps most galling was James Hackchuk's recollection that the landlord in question here, a man named John Walsh, incidentally a Catholic, boasted that it was the first time he had seen his estate or visited his tenants. Hackchuk could not resist the barb that the tenants first impression of landlordism was not likely to be a favourable one. While the tenants in Strokestown may have known who Dennis Mann was, there is no reason to believe what happened to them was any less brutal. The tragedy of such evictions was captured in the words of another Quaker, the Dubliner Richard Davis Webb, who arrived in the scene of the eviction I just recalled a few months later after it had taken place. He recalled the ruined communities. I walked about four miles to Ahleen, a village on the southern part of the Mullet, visiting on the way the ruined villages of Mullerow and Clogher, the scene of the recent clearances mentioned by James Hackchuk in his visit to Connacht in 1847. In these villages there are probably 100 cabins demolished, from which fully 400 individuals must have been thrown without shelter upon the world. I never before saw so great a scene of devastation. Many of the articles of household furniture, such as tables, dressers and culinary utensils, are left among the ruins. In consequence of the number of persons who have died or emigrated, these articles are so common that nobody values them. For me, this highlights the personal tragedy of what was unfolding in Strokestown. You can imagine the broken dressers cast aside, the small personal effects in the rubble of houses, all testimonies to ruined lives. Meanwhile, the fate of those who lived in these houses was no better than that of their furniture. A poor law inspector who visited another evicted village, this time in Mayo, recorded of the people, Some are in their graves, others under ditches, others begging shelter from house to house and plundering whatever they could lay their hands on. One final story, which I have recounted in a previous podcast, but is worth mentioning, details the terrible emotions that evictions evoked. After a community who lived not too far from Strokestown in Carrigallon in County Leitrim was evicted, one person commented, We all lived in peace in this village. We never had the law at each other. Our forefathers lived here for generations past. You would say if you saw it before this ruin came, it was a nice little village. This might be a nostalgic look back at village life, but it does get a point across about loss. The historian Tim O'Neill has summarised this in the following terms. The attachment to land was more than an economic one. It was an attachment to place, to landscape and local societies. 
At Strokestown, the losses were truly terrible. Fever sheds had to be erected to accommodate the growing numbers of evicted people who had fallen sick, an unsurprising result given large numbers were being cast out of doors as winter approached. While the evictions unquestionably heightened tensions in the area substantially, what was in many ways a perfect storm developed when word arrived back in Ireland by September the 1st, 1847, of what had happened to the Strokestown emigrants. Soon everyone knew how many had died as it was carried in the Irish papers. Resentment against Dennis Mann was growing in the Strokestown area. These tensions reached breaking point on November the 2nd, 1847. But before we see what happened, I want to take a quick break. Today's show is brought to you by DeBorkaRareBooks.com, the largest stockist of Irish rare books, with titles stretching from the 16th century to the present day. As sponsors of today's show, they have put together a great offer for you, the listeners of the show. They are offering you 15% off some of the best titles in Irish history. This includes a book called Famine in Ireland which is a great collection of reports and letters from the 1840s compiled from the archives of the Society of Friends who organised large-scale famine relief efforts. I have quoted from this book in several shows, including this one. The accounts are really moving and it's a great accompaniment to this podcast series. With your listener discount of 15%, you can get this book today in a beautiful hardback edition for just €30. That's available now at deborkarearbooks.com forward slash podcast. They're also offering 15% off what is one of the great collector's items in terms of Irish history and what is probably one of their most famous publications in the field of history. This is The Great Book of Irish Genealogies. This is a most unusual work written in the 17th century and it catalogues the ancient history of Ireland's kingdoms, along with a vast collection of genealogies of old Irish families using sources that are now lost. DeBorkaRareBooks.com have had this work translated from Irish into English and now their five-volume work is a beautiful collector's item. While it contains thousands of pages of lists of Irish genealogies and prose and poetry relating to Ireland's ancient past, the five volumes are, as I've said, a collector's item and will look really beautiful on your bookshelf. The five volumes normally retail for €635 but with your listener discount today you can get all five volumes for just €540. This is an opportunity not to be missed. It's a really beautiful collection of books. So go now to deborkarearbooks.com forward slash podcast to see these books and their vast catalogue of other amazing titles relating to Irish history. That's deborkarearbooks.com forward slash podcast. The spelling, as I've said, is somewhat different than you might expect. It's deborka with a C. So it's D-E-B-U-R-C-A rarebooks.com forward slash podcast. That's D-E. B-U-R-C-A rarebooks.com forward slash podcast Early on November the 2nd Major Dennis Mann wrote a private letter to his agent John Ross Mann complaining of tenants organising a rent strike saying I will evict the whole lot and not one of them shall get land again 
Then he revealed another side to his character when he travelled to attend a meeting of the local board of guardians of the Poor Law Union, where he made a plea for increased aid to his tenants. Since the famine had begun, he had engaged in similar measures and in 1846 he had given £200 to fund famine relief in the area. It is clear that while Mann, like so many landlords, had a sort of paternalistic view of his responsibilities to his tenants, this does little to redeem him, given it was clearly superseded by his ruthless drive to make his estate profitable. After the meeting of the Poor Law Guardians on November the 2nd, he set out for Strokestown by carriage with a local doctor, Terence Shanley. The road took them through a spot known in Roscommon as the Khyber Pass. When Mahan and Shanley's carriage reached the area, it was already completely dark given it was after 6 and the sun sets around 4.30pm in November in Ireland. As the carriage was around four miles out from Strokestown, passing through the Khyber, two shots rang out. The first missed, but given it was dark and the assassins were positioned low down, they didn't panic. A second shot hit the intended target, striking man dead in the chest, punching through his left nipple. The spray of the gun peppered his abdomen and chest. Only able to cry out, Oh God! There was nothing the doctor could do and Major Dennis Mann died on the spot. While the doctor had to bring the Macabre news back to Strokestown House, word quickly spread through the surrounding countryside. Undoubtedly the sight of the bloodied carriage and the remains of Mahan alerted Manny to what had happened. Such was his unpopularity in the area that the news of his demise was celebrated across the local countryside. Word spread rapidly and bonfires were lit to celebrate the death of Major Dennis Mann. However, when news of his assassination filtered out from Strokestown, it was greeted with revulsion in wider society. It was seen as symbolic of a country increasingly out of control. His funeral was unsurprisingly held in private as there were concerns over safety. The whole affair was rushed and traditional customs were dispensed with. Such occasions normally saw the entire community gather with the coffin being carried a small distance by as many people as possible in a marked respect. This was not the case for Dennis Mann. The funeral took place at night with the coffin being placed in the family vault on the estate. The area was so tense that once the funeral ended the guests left Strokestown early the following morning too scared to leave as darkness approached. While the reason for Mann's murder was pretty obvious to anyone familiar with events in Strokestown over the previous months, initially at least, the national coverage was somewhat strange. Shortly after the murder, a narrative emerged that focused heavily on the local Catholic priest, Father Michael McDermott. It was said that he had made an inflammatory sermon at Mass in the days prior to the murder. He had, it was claimed, harangued the crowd and when referring to Mann stated, He is worse than Cromwell, yet he lives. While Father McDermott was even named in the British House of Commons debates on legislation to combat lawlessness in Ireland a few weeks later in December, it is almost certain he had no involvement. His denials of any knowledge were supported by a public letter by several prominent members of the Strokestown community who testified to the fact that he had not said anything of the kind at Mass. Whether the murder was instigated by Father McDermott or in the far more likely scenario that it was the actions of a local secret society known as the Molly Maguires has been debated back and forth. 
However, this is all besides the point and detracts from the most important aspect of the assassination of Dennis Mann. That is, what it reveals to us 170 years later about the nature of how the famine was taking its toll on Irish society. The claims of clerical involvement served to distract from the utter failure of the latest British government policy which had only heightened tensions in Ireland. As we saw earlier, they had closed soup kitchens in September 1847 and placed the burden of famine relief in the country on poor law unions and Irish landlords who had to pay poor rates. This failed to acknowledge the situation on the ground, particularly in the west of Ireland. Many landlords were simply unwilling to pay for famine relief and for others doing so, it would have resulted in bankruptcy. This situation had only incentivised evictions of poor tenants for whom the landlords were liable to pay poor rates for. Therefore, the government policy essentially had set the stage for what was to become a ruthless and bitter conflict between landlords on the one hand desperate to avoid being stuck with the costs of famine relief and their tenants on the other who were desperate to survive. While Strokestown explains the dynamics that led to Dennis Mann's murder, we need to look beyond this corner of Roscommon to see how similar tensions were affecting the rest of Ireland. As Christmas approached in 1847, Ireland was a deeply unsettled land. Newspapers lurched from one exaggeration to another as the numbers of attempted murders were increasing. In the aftermath of Dennis Mann's murder, the Cork Examiner claimed 12 landlords in Roscommon had been earmarked for execution, which the newspaper would later report prompted the gentry of the county to leave in large numbers. This was not unwise. While there may not have been any conspiracy to murder a dozen landlords, tensions were unquestionably boiling over as evictions increased. On November the 29th, only a few weeks after Dennis Mann had been shot, another landlord, the Reverend James Lloyd, was assassinated about 10 kilometres north of Strokestown for evicting tenants. However, the dynamics at play in Strokestown and the surrounding area that had resulted in the death of two landlords and an unknown number of tenants that probably ran into the thousands was not isolated to this corner of Roscommon. Indeed, had it not been for Dennis Mann's assassination, the evictions at Strokestown would have been overshadowed by events elsewhere, which were, in some cases, far more extensive than Mann's clearances. Perhaps the most notorious evictions took place further down the Shannon River in County Clare, where over the course of the famine, one in ten people in the county were evicted. The region of Kilrush became a byword for eviction where nearly one in five were thrown out of their homes. The evictions in Kilrush, County Clare began in late 1847 and by April 1848 1,000 houses in the region which had once been the homes of five to 6,000 people had already been destroyed. By the end of the famine estimates put the total number evicted in the region at somewhere between 12 and 19,000 people. Like those in Strokestown, the evicted people in Kilrush were cast out into the world with little hope. Extremely impoverished, they had no chance of emigrating to escape the horrors of famine. Very quickly, the local workhouse was totally overwhelmed. It could neither house the numbers being evicted, nor could it provide them with outdoor relief. One poor law inspector, Captain Edward Kennedy, commented on the situation. 
I believe those small landholders who have since last spring been evicted number 9,000 souls and that 8,000 of these are without even shelter as an eviction seldom occurs without the demolition of a house. They're swarming over the Union in temporary sheds and huts which are unfit for human occupation and from which they are daily driven by the inclement weather. When challenged about these evictions, Irish landlords were quick to point out the dire financial situation they were facing, one they would claim left them with little choice. It is true that the Great Famine had more or less destroyed the Irish economy and tenants could no longer pay rent. This hit the landlords in the pocket and as we have seen, the taxes they had to pay to fund famine relief were unquestionably increasing dramatically from late 1847 onwards, which further incentivised eviction. This situation was articulated by one of the major landlords in Kilrush County Clare, or Colonel Vandeleur, who, if he was to be believed, claimed that in the town of Kilrush itself, he earned just over £11 in rent, but had to pay another £22 in poor rates. However, as we will see later in the show, many landlords' personal finances were not as tight as they liked to portray. One way or another, though, similar forces were at play across the island, leading to evictions all along the western seaboard in particular. As landlords looked for alternatives to paying poor rates, this led to evictions and clearances. In many cases, people were replaced with cattle, which were in blunt terms more profitable. Overall, it's not known exactly how many evictions took place through the course of the Great Famine. Historians' estimates vary wildly from low figures of 200,000 people to James Donnelly's high figure of 500,000 people. Mary Daly puts the number of individual evictions at 66,794, a figure that would involve around quarter of a million people. No one knows for sure what percentage of these people died but they were the most vulnerable, being cast out into the world with no hope. To conclude today's show, I want to talk a bit more about who or what exactly was to blame for these evictions, which made the Great Famine so much worse. But first, another quick break with some announcements, including an upcoming AMA on Reddit. Hi folks, thanks very much for tuning in to today's show. In the last episode, I asked you to share the episode to help build the audience and since then there has been a noticeable increase in downloads of the show. The podcast has been in the top 10 in Ireland pretty much since the last show came out. So thanks to everyone who shared the show then. If you want to help out, taking time to share the podcast through social media or emailing the link to your friends really helps grow the audience. In the coming months, I have some really exciting stuff coming up. So lots of you have been in touch about tours in 2018. I'm going to ask you to bear with me for another fortnight. I'm developing a new tour at the moment that's really different from everything else on offer in Dublin. I had hoped to announce it this week, but it will be another two weeks now. So I would say watch this space. In the meantime, you should put the date of March the 4th in your diary. I'm going to be doing an AMA on the Great Famine on the website Reddit. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, so you can ask me anything you want about the Great Irish Famine. 
This will be hosted on the History subreddit at reddit.com forward slash or forward slash history. I will flag this in coming shows as the date approaches. This episode, as you can see, is the longest one in the series to date and involves quite extensive and time-consuming research. This has been funded by listeners like you who have become patrons of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Patrons have access to lots of exclusive content, including episode guides, which include a fully referenced transcript of each show and extra podcasts. One of the exclusive podcasts available is a recording of the 1850 book, A Voice from Steerage, which is a first-hand account of what crossing the Atlantic was like for famine emigrants, just like those who left Strokestown. You can get this and much more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. As I've argued through the course of this series and hinted at earlier in today's show, I feel that the ultimate responsibility lies with the British government of the day, which was, by 1847, that of Lord John Russell and the Liberal Party. It was widely predicted that their policies would result in large numbers of evictions, but they pursued them anyway. By late 1847, it was clear that this strategy was not working. The rise in evictions was clearly being caused by placing the responsibility of famine relief onto the Irish poor law system. This, as I have outlined, above all incentivised evictions of poor tenants living on farms valued at less than £4 for whom landlords had to pay poor rates. There is clear evidence that this was one of the main driving forces for evictions. For example, in northwest Mayo, the number of farms valued at £4 or less fell from 17,216 to 10,354 through the course of the famine. In 1850, Edward Nassau, the brother of the English economist Nassau Sr. and a poor law inspector in Ireland summarised the situation when he said, The great instrument which is clearing Ireland is the poor law. It supplies both motive and the means. The government could have stepped in at any time to alleviate this by placing a moratorium on evictions and paying for famine relief. They decided not to. As we have seen time and again, their mantra was as little government interference as possible. Furthermore, some at least supported what was in many ways a revolution underway in rural Ireland. Some of the evictions, particularly those in Kilrush, drew down criticism in Parliament, making some senior government figures uncomfortable. But as the historian Christine Keneally has pointed out, this was largely due to a fear of public embarrassment over the issue, and there is no doubt that they saw merit in evictions, as they paved way for a rural transformation in Ireland. Lord Palmerston, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, saying, It's useless to disguise the truth that any great improvement in the social system of Ireland must be founded upon the extensive change in the present system of agrarian occupation and that this change necessarily implies a long, continued and systematic ejectment of smallholders and squatting cottagers. They, the government, ultimately did nothing to stop evictions and by the end of 1847 they were spawning a second crisis, one of spiralling crime rates. In 1847, 117 people were charged with murder, an increase from the 92 of the previous year. 
Aside from this, crimes against property had gone through the roof. From the 6,603 cases in 1846, this had ballooned to 17,400 cases in 1847. Prisons were overflowing and disease inside them was rampant. 1,315 people died in Irish prisons alone in 1847, among them an individual named James Farrell, who had been arrested in Roscommon in early November 1847 on suspicion of being involved in Dennis Mann's assassination. He died from fever inside two weeks of being imprisoned in Roscommon jail. The point I am trying to make, but getting slightly sidetracked, is that it did not take a genius to figure out that crime was rising in Ireland due to the Great Famine and that soaring evictions were making it worse. The government did address the issue, but rather than admit famine relief was the root of the problem and therein lay a solution, they instead decided they would fall back on a tough-on-crime policy and suspended the Habeas Corpus Act, which afforded people the right to a trial before they could be imprisoned. Special commissions were instituted in several counties to try cases, resulting in numerous hangings. Evictions and death from starvation and disease continued. When these measures were proposed in the House of Commons by Sir George Grey, The criticism of John O'Connell highlighted the attitude of the government when O'Connell accused Gray, saying he had not said one word on the crimes of the rich while he was dwelling at such length on the crimes of the poor. O'Connell said he had a long list of provocations by Irish landlords which had led to the increase in crime. This was true and it brings us to the role of Irish landlords. British government policy did not force men like Dennis Mann to evict anyone. They had set conditions where it was highly advantageous to do so, but ultimately the landlords decided to follow through. It is important then to acknowledge that Irishmen such as Colonel Van der Leer and Kilrush or Dennis Mann himself played a critical and an important role. It would be mistaken to portray them as victims forced into an unpleasant course of action by a government policy that had left them with no alternative. Irish landlords had, after all, helped to engineer the situation. In 1847, as legislation that saw the British government withdraw from famine relief was passed through the House of Commons, Irish landlords had tacked on what was known as the Gregory Clause, or the Quarter Acre Clause. This was exceedingly cruel. It stipulated that only those with holdings of less than quarter of an acre of land could receive famine relief from autumn 1847 onwards. This now forced the poor starving tenants to choose between famine relief or giving up their land, which usually meant becoming homeless, because while they could theoretically give up a farm and hold on to their houses and still qualify under the quarter acre clause, landlords usually demanded the house as well. This clause led to evictions by another name. The Quaker who we met earlier, Richard Davis Webb, travelling through the west of Ireland, witnessed this in action in a remote corner of northwest Mayo. After visiting the village of Polythomus in Urs, he recalled, I had heard that many clearances were affected by landlords refusing as ex officio poor law guardians to recommend their starving tenantry for relief unless they consented to give up their holdings. The poor, in many instances, clung to their little bit of land with the energy of drowning men. As Webb says here, the poor were desperate to try and hang on to their farms. Some have claimed that this is the Irish attachment to land and that people would rather starve than hand over their farms. This wasn't the case. 
it was far more tragic. While as we saw they could technically give up their land and keep their houses, many were afraid that landlords would push ahead and demolish their homes as well, so to avoid being made homeless, they refused to budge, leaving them with no famine relief, given that the only other alternative was homelessness, which itself carried terrible risks. They also knew that if they voluntarily gave up their few acres, their landlords would no longer pay for them to emigrate if they introduced assisted emigration schemes. While this was brutal treatment of tenants, there were noticeable exceptions and not all Irish landlords acted cruelly. For example, the family of the famous Irish author Maria Edgeworth refused to carry out evictions and provided free seed to their tenants to sow crops for the following year. When Maria Edgeworth herself died in 1849, she was mourned by her tenants, which sharply contrasted to the reaction Dennis Mann's death received in Roscommon. The O'Connell family in Kerry also acted nobly by cutting their rents in half, while Lord Lansdowne, another major Kerry landlord, did clear his estate, but is generally regarded to have done so in a very responsible fashion through a well-funded emigration scheme. However, this was not the common experience. Ultimately, Irish landlords' attempts to restructure their estates in the midst of the Great Famine cost thousands of lives. There is a valid discussion to be had that the restructuring was inevitable and necessary, but the decision of landlords to use the famine to do it was criminal, even if within the bounds of the law, as many evictions were. Furthermore, for some of the landlords, money was not as tight as they would have had people believe. They continued to live lavish lifestyles, squandering money on essentially useless things. Major Dennis Mann, for example, continued to import French champagne during the famine and the annual expenditure of Strokestown House was £3,000. This might seem small in terms of a national budget of the day, but in terms of what was needed to alleviate famine on his estate, this was very substantial indeed. There is no doubt though that taking other options and not evicting people would have been very costly for many landlords. Some probably would have went bankrupt but given the costs to many tenants was death, it's hardly an excuse. Further to this, given that many of the problems facing these estates resulted from landlords or their ancestors' mismanagement, they should have accepted more financial responsibility. Instead, they essentially placed all of the blame onto the shoulders of their tenants at the worst time possible and began to evict them in a process that cost innumerable lives. To finish, I'll leave you with the words of the English Quaker James Hack who when reflecting on his visit to Connacht in 1847 said, Where land has been held for generations by tenants who have paid all which they could raise, is not the landlord morally liable for the risk of extraordinary providences? With that I leave you until the next episode where we begin to tackle the story of emigration during the famine from which Irish communities across the globe emerged. Until next time, Slow. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 